<laughs> there we go. Well, these are exciting times. From my perspective as an American, as a conservative, um, I believe that America is a conservative nation by nature. We are based upon a foundation of conservative values, that being that we respect the right of, and we view as a progressive idea, the right of the individual to have sovereignty under God, to have the maximum amount of individual freedom uh, mitigated by necessities of living with each other, and that the purpose of government is basically to, um, to keep the peace between us so that we can function in a context of maximum freedom. That rights come from the creator of the universe and not from the state. That is a fundamental idea that upon which this great American republic was founded. And in a practical sense, it is the idea that has propelled us forward to the degree that we've moved forward in, in this world. Um, let's see here. I'm going to... I think I'm going to print that. There we go. Um, I, you know, with, with YouTube, you have to kind of go go with little pieces. Otherwise, it um, I lose it. Um, but um, I am heartened by the victory of Karen Handel in the special election in Georgia over John Ossoff. And um, I think that this is a harbinger for advancing the very progressive and indeed revolutionary agenda of President Donald J. Trump and the Trump movement, the Trump revolution. I think that the uh, Ossoff himself and the Democrats and the liberals and the left, they are missing the point when they look at the results of this election in that they continue and predictably and perhaps inexorably to be locked into an old narrative, an old way of looking at the world, one that is based upon hate and divisiveness and regression. And as long as they are locked into that view, I would predict that they will continue to lose election after election and that indeed the Trump revolution is going to take its rightful place in American life for the next many decades, if not for the next generation. And the only way that the Democrats are going to get out of that is if they, bec- if they get on the train, the Trump train, basically, if they, if they become like Trump. In fact, um, if you take a look at the special election in Georgia, that was exactly what John Ossoff tried to do. And predictably, because that's what the left always does. He tried to change his spots. He uh, took on new stripes. You know, a, a leopard can take on new stripes. He uh, came out of nowhere. He had never run for office before. He was a complete nobody. Um, didn't even live in the district. And all of a sudden, he was catapulted into the national media by the elite left-wing Eastern Seaboard establishment. Because he ran on a very crafty slogan, and I can appreciate, frankly, as somewhat of an opportunist myself, or I have a side of me that's like that, why he did it. How could he resist? He ran on the slogan, let's make Trump furious, right? The result is that overnight he was catapulted into a national figure. He was, his face was plastered everywhere, and he was given something in the in the neighborhood of millions of dollars initially which eventually turned into uh, over 30 million dollars an unprecedented amount of money for any congressional campaign in history all coming from these fat cat left wing top 1% liberals you know the big corporations most of them which are liberal and he then was qualified to run in the uh, 
in the general in the in the face-off because he came in he didn't have enough votes to put him over the top and so he ran in the in a in a in a full election against karen handel who was kind of a more conventional republican candidate she'd been a former secretary of state she'd been in government for a while you know i love all these left-wingers who say well donald trump had never held office before he had no experience well you know guess what i mean Karen Handel was very experienced and Ossoff wasn't. Putting that aside, suddenly he got a war chest that was up to the, they, they say an estimate, $30 million. Money that just materialized out of nowhere. It actually would be pretty interesting to trace that money. You know, you can learn a lot from the money trail. Um, and of course, then Karen Handel called the Republican National Committee and she called Trump and she said, hey, I'm in trouble here. This guy's suddenly out of nowhere, raised $30 million. I need help. And so they, they helped her. I mean, they, they, they didn't come up with quite that much, but they came up with a lot of money. I mean, I think they, they came up with $15 million, well, 50, you know, 15 to $20 million for her. Um, and she won predictably. Now, this has substantially boosted President Trump's legislative agenda as, for example, next week they're going to actually be voting possibly to rescind large portions of Obamacare, which I would suggest would be historic because never, I don't think, rarely if ever, hardly ever, in, in world history, has a big government program been voluntarily dismantled without a revolution, without, you know, an overthrow. And so we're looking at a historic event next week, and one that I would suggest quite the opposite of the rhetoric would be true, which is that getting rid of Obamacare is going to save lives, untold lives, unseen lives and that that it basically will put the the responsibility for covering health care back into the hands of private insurance companies competing on the open market and that hopefully means more competition more free market and 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 a lower cost to people who want who don't want to pay or can't afford to pay the high cost of, of private insurance but what I thought was particularly interesting, frankly, was the rhetoric that came out of John Ossoff on his defeat. Um, it, it, he delivered essentially the same speech that he would have delivered had he won. Um, you know, in the general, of course, he did what most liberal left-wingers do and what Karl Marx instructed the left to do in the final pages of the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848. And that is, adapt himself to the conditions of his district or his region in order to ultimately win. In other words, it's okay to lie. You know, if it means becoming a monarchist, become a monarchist. If it means becoming a royalist, become a royalist. If it means shifting to the right of who knows who, become a libertarian, become a libertarian. In other words, you know, in order to win, you're able to say whatever you need to say. You're able to do whatever you need to do to get there. And, of course, the left knows this. They know it in their bones. I mean, they may not know it consciously. But they understand how this works because they're like that themselves. And so they all kind of, you know, they wink. They, they nod. You know, they, they sort of look the other way. You know, maybe they might even lodge some mild criticism just to preserve a fig leaf of credibility so that people actually believe that they believe in something or that they stand for something so they could come back to that later. But largely, they continue to vote for this person. They continue to quietly support this person with the hope that they're going to fool everyone else. And that's exactly what John Ossoff did, right? In the general, he suddenly became conservative. He would not mention Trump anymore, did not talk about 
you know, uh, in fury, making Trump furious. That was off the table. That was only for the primary. And he did not, um, you know, he just didn't go there. He just talked about, you know, local good government issues and strong economy and, and, and improving business. In other words, he, he became a conservative, uh, you know, in, in his rhetoric. But of course, the left being what they are, they always show their true colors once they win. And in his case, he showed his true colors when he lost by delivering a concession speech that was filled with hate and vituperation and attacks on his, not just his opponent, Karen Handel, but on all of her supporters and on his state and on the nation. In other words, he stood up and said, oh, well, I'm fighting against hate. I'm fighting against ignorance. I'm fighting against evil. You know, in this kind of rhetoric, you know, the, the stuff that Hillary Clinton talked about when she mentioned the, the basket of deplorables, right? I'm fighting against people who don't like black men and women. I'm fighting against people who don't like Muslim men and women. I'm fighting against people who don't like gay men and women. Right? You know, the usual leftist, hate-filled, divisive rhetoric of smear and arrogance. Somehow, anyone who doesn't goose-step and zig-heil to their point of view in this particular genre of today, they must hate everybody. They're filled with prejudice and bigotry. Of course, back in the 19th century, the attack was that they were part of the class conspiracy to 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 exploit people you know the 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 um you know the the bourgeoisie exploiting the proletariat um since the 1960s it shifted to race and ethnicity thanks to a certain degree to the groundbreaking leftist work of Franz Fanon the author of The Wretched of the Earth I think he was a native of Guadeloupe in the West Indies so you had that kind of rhetoric spewing forth from Ossoff at his defeat. And after going through the long litany of the deplorables, attacking personally and in the most ugly way people who opposed him and didn't vote for him, linking them with President, Bush, President Trump, who of course is the great Satan, and with all of the Trump reporters who are these ignorant, buck-toothed Neanderthals, right? You know, it's just the, the most hated and the most, you know, loathsome group of people. And then, of course, he throws his own state under the bus in an anti-Southern comment. Oh, well, especially here, when you really have to deal with the haters and the bigots. Now, I think that Ossoff understood that his gambit to win office is over. He'll never come back. Um, you know, he's, he's gone. So I think that was a little bit of a play or even a plea for the, the national eastern seaboard left to embrace him or to do something for him, reward him somehow, you know, give him something. Because they're going to probably throw him under the bus. He's a loser. They don't want him around. He reminds people. It's like Michael Dukakis after losing in 1988. Uh, the left moved away from him like a Chesapeake Bay crab. You know, they're walking sideways. In fact, there was one embarrassing moment when Dukakis, after losing the presidential election, he, monitor, he, he was monitor of a debate between mayoral candidates in Boston and nobody even wanted to go near him and shake his hand. I mean, the guy was, was like typhoid Mary. And that, that's where, where I think Ossoff is going to be. So he's just giving one final last desperate plea. Please award me. I fought against the ignorant Southerners, knowing that he has no future left in his own state. And so another left-winger bites the dust. After all the establishment poured money in, he got umpteen millions of dollars worth of free media all over the country. 
you know, with everyone propping him up and supporting him and talking about the Nate great new era when the so-called resistance is going to finally challenge Trump. And they went down in smoke, right? Now, is this an, uh, is this an auger for the upcoming midterm elections? I think it is. I think that the Democrats are going to continue to uh, fall down, you know, further because as long as they embrace this hate-filled rhetoric as espoused by Ossoff and is espoused by most of them privately, for for sure, and really publicly on their radio shows and on their, you know, their media on a daily drumbeat basis, then, then they're going to just sink further and further. It doesn't work for them. This kind of hatred is getting them nowhere because it is further identifying exactly who they are. And it makes it more difficult when they try to lie, like Ossoff did during the election, and suddenly claim to be standing up for, for conservative values. I mean, even Obama got away with that in 2008. Uh, this is yours truly, Chuck Morse, holding Fort, veteran radio talk show host, author. You know, I have to tell you, speaking of authors, I am working on a new book, a new manuscript that really has absorbed a a large piece of my attention. Um, It's a fascinating piece of research. I am looking into and researching the history in America of assassinations, assassination attempts, and assassination conspiracy theories to try to determine, firstly, whether or not the public figure was assassinated, and if so, or if there was an assassination attempt, because some of these, sometimes these things are not clear. And if so, was there a conspiracy behind it, or was it just some lone nut? You know, that's what they said about Lee Harvey Oswald. Kennedy was killed by a lone nut. Um, And the research is really, really interesting. Um, In that, uh, you know, it it gives an insight into periods of American history going all the way back. I mean, I'm starting the book with an examination of of the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And I'm going to bring it right up to the present which is an examination of the so-called Clinton body count, ending with Seth Rich. Were these people assassinated, or were they just murdered, or did they just die of natural causes? If they, in fact, were assassinated, then even if it's just by a lone nut, but if the, especially if there's a conspiracy involved, then that gets into a political controversy because that death be- changed the course of our of our politics of our culture you know were they killed because of their policies that that somebody out there wanted to stop those policies and if so who and why were they killed because they were about to expose some kind of secret that that might have threatened uh, people in power, and if so, what was it, and who were they? You know, there's all these amazing scenarios around these cases of assassination or potential assassination, and um, the research has been absolutely fascinating. Um, I think I'm just going to talk just a bit more about this, only because I'm I'm embroiled in it right now to such an extent that. It takes up a large part of my day that I'm not working at my job or I'm not with my family, you know, my, my sort of extra energy. Um, in that, I've discovered that there was a tendency to either assassinate or untimely deaths of people in this country who had some kind of an affiliation with the Whig philosophy, if you will. Um, you know, the, uh, the American system, as they called it, before the, um, before the Civil War. 
the American system was one by which it was really coined originally by Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. And one of its main expositors in the in the early uh, part of the country was Henry Clay and others. And w- what it was is it advocated for a, a strong national government, a strong union with a national government uh, working with, uh, you know, industry, working with private sector, working with uh, helping to empower um, the advancement of the society through uh, means by which it could be easier for private money to be invested into advancing America for all people and making us a more coherent country. And this translated in the form of, of building national infrastructure, uh, which meant uh, back then, you know, canals, roads connecting states, uh, bridges, harbors, um, you know, lighthouses, military infrastructure, um, all of these things. I mean, it, it was investment, mostly with private money. Um, and it called for national institutions like a national pro- central bank. Now, there's a lot of opinions on both sides with regard to the wisdom of having a national central bank. Still is. Today we do have one. It's called the Fed. Um, but there was a great deal of controversy going all the way back to when Washington, under the guidance of Alexander Hamilton, agreed to the chartering of the first central bank in the United States, the, the National Bank, which is in Philadelphia. And, uh, and, and that this bank basically would loan money to uh, people with collateral based on, on farming and, and mining and small business and other equities by which people could either use hard property or use business plans that were deemed appropriate to get very low interest loans uh, from this central bank, which would then create the currency and and loan it. And that's how money was created in this economy. It was created as a as an abstract collateralization of existing and potentially solid equities um, at low interest. The interest would primarily be paid to the federal treasury, which would then use invest the money further by developing public infrastructure. Um, you know, it was a great system. It was a brilliant system, actually. It was first patented in Massachusetts uh, during colonial times when the Massachusetts Bay Colony set up uh, a land bank and began to uh, create currency, paper money, not gold, not backed by anything other than the good faith and credit of the the colony, and would only create money to loan to farmers to to improve their their land and and businesses who could come up with a solid plan. It was very conservative in that it really took a hard look at at the investments did not give out investments except uh, under very stringent guidelines set up by the colony uh, with a lot of oversight that the interest of low interest monies went to the the government which used it to do things like pave streets in Boston and build gas lights and you know improve the harbor and that uh, because of the interest payments which, again, resulted from equity by businesses and farms who were making a profit, the, uh, the government was able to function with very low taxes, if any. Basically, back then, there was no income tax. Ba- uh, you know, the government would raise revenue by means of, of tariffs and, and, and uh, excises on, uh, on various commodities, what, what was called a sin tax, you know, like there'd be a tax on whiskey. Um, and, and that those taxes, of course, could only be implemented by representatives in a state legislature. Um, and thus, in this system, I'm getting into a little history here, because that's what I'm studying right now. The, the Massachusetts Bay Colony began to thrive 
And the other colonies began to imitate this. I mean, in fact, in, in Virginia and in, in Maryland, they used tobacco as a means to back the currency. That was uh, the production of tobacco was a very profitable business. And thus the farmers would literally deliver tobacco to a tobacco house situated on the lawn of the government's, uh, you know, a house, the government, the government itself as collateral for the creation of, of currency, of abstract money, of paper money, what they called scrip. And it worked very well. In fact, if you go to the Maryland State House to this day in Annapolis, right on the lawn is a, is a small brick building that was the bank. And that in that building, there is a facility to store tobacco, which was collateral for currency. It was an amazing system. It was done in a way that financed the governments so that they could keep taxes low and costs low and offered cheap credit to businesses, which could then expand. And again, it was very conservative, so that certainly while there were losses, the losses were very few and far between. And uh, what happened to that system was that when Benjamin Franklin, who was visited England as a representative of the colonies, was asked by Parliament or by members of Parliament, how is it that the Americans are doing so well? What is the secret to America's success? And Franklin answered by saying, because Americans have their own money. They create their own currencies. And he explained to the parliament members how they did this. And this is, of course, in Franklin's famous diaries. The British parliament, once they got wind of it, and this is right around the time that the Bank of England had, been, had come into existence, maybe about, a, about 30, 40 years previous, they became like, we have to stop this. We can't let the colonies do this. We want to have a piece of it. We want to get the interest. So the Bank of England, there was the, uh, the, bank, the Currency Act of, I think it was 1750s, which uh, th then there was two currency acts. One was worse than the other, which basically banned the use of scrip. They took away the colonists' money. The colonists could only use Bank of England notes, and they could only use scarce gold and silver coin for the payment of taxes and for the payment of official transactions. And they took further steps to ban the use of scrip. And the result of this was a depression. The first time in the Western world, in the New World, uh, people were unemployed and there was just not enough money to go around. And thus, you had unemployment, you had dislocation, and Franklin has said in his notes, in his famous uh, diaries, that, or the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, that this was one of the main causes of the American Revolution. He says the Americans would have tolerated a small tax on tea, but when the British crown took away their money, that is what caused an uprising. That is what caused social discord because after all the a, a stable currency is is more than just an economic expression obviously it's a social expression the value of money is is the the economic value of an economy but it's also the moral and the social value of an economy it's it's a it's an abstract means of determining the worth of a society and the ability of a society to, to advance and invest in its future. Um, so, you know, by the British taking away that basic right of the colonies to create their own money, that was a very profound aspect of, of the American Revolution. And it should be noted that one of the first acts of the Second Continental Congress, when it was convened in 1776 was to create a national script, a national currency, what they called the continental. 
the British responded to this creation with a full-scale invasion of America. 30 battalions. They talk about this in the play Hamilton, right? Uh, King George III, he sent his army to occupy the, the United States, and that was the American Revolution. And they did occupy New York and Philadelphia for pretty much the entire war. They also unloaded barrels of counterfeits that devalued the script and made it worth very little. That's why the, the way the expression, it's not worth a continental dam comes from, because of the devaluation of the American continental um, currency. But again, that was really the fault of the British more than anything. Yes, it was certainly inflated a bit uh, to cover the expense of the, the onerous expense of, the inva- of countering the invasion, um, but 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 the real the real cause of that was the counterfeiting. Um, after the war, of course, and with the creation of the Constitution, Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution says that only Congress shall regulate shall regulate coin and the value thereof. That means that Congress decides, and the word coin doesn't mean literally necessarily the creation of of coins. It is the creation of money, to coin money and to regulate its value by deciding how much currency exists in the economy. If there's too much currency, you have inflation. If there's too little currency, you have depression. And that's why the Congress, which is the elected representatives of the people, should and ought to decide issues of currency. Now, I don't want to get too far into this. It's a big subject. I actually cover this in one of my books. Um, but but um, the power to regulate the value of money is an awesome power. And I would argue it ought to be held by elected officials, not by a private consortium of investors and bankers, because if they do it, then they're going to manipulate that value in a way that not only enriches them, and impoverishes their their competitors, but they're going to get into control. They're going to get into social engineering. And money should not be, you know, money should be neutral. Money should not be, it shouldn't be making money for anybody. People should make money, of course. And banks should make money um, from interest in terms of loaning capital but the money itself should not be profitable to to private bankers it should be if there's any profit derived from the actual creation of the money that profit should go to the government and to the treasury which should then use the money for its own expenses which um, I think should result in balancing the budget, reducing taxes, uh, cutting back on uh, expenses so that um, we are freer to, um, to keep more of that which we've earned, while at the same time the government is able to be financed and offer its services as we choose them to offer them. But uh, getting back to the topic of my book, which is Assassinations, I have noticed a trend in that people who were Whigs, as it were, like starting with Alexander Hamilton, who advocated a strong, sovereign national government operating in the interest indirectly of the people by promoting business, promoting infrastructure, promoting industry, uh, protecting American businesses through tariffs developing national institutions that further advance business and advance people's freedoms, that these people, once they were in power, they seemed to die under questionable circumstances. And and that seems to be a trend. I mean, I'm studying this. Whether it be um, Alexander Hamilton, who was, of course, killed by Burr in a very famous duel 
that might have had more to it than just simply uh, Burr was defending his honor and that, um, you know, that, that Burr hated Hamilton. That's true, too. But did Burr kill Hamilton because he held a vision of this country that was different than Hamilton's? He was against the American system. He was more into an authoritarian, you know, kind of royalist type system. I think, yes, I think that's part of it, especially given the fact that um, after the assassination, Aaron Burr, as vice president of the United States, um, entered into a conspiracy to have the western part of the country secede from the Union. That's something that's known to history. That's not a, a theory. And I also bring it up to the deaths in office of William Henry Harrison, who only lived four weeks into his term, and Zachary Taylor, who was there for a year and a half, both of whom were the only elected Whigs between between Washington and Lincoln. Was Washington assassinated after leaving office? I mean, this is something I'm wondering about. How much do we know about his death? I don't think so, but, you know, it's worth studying. But you have two Whig presidents, William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor, both killed in office, both die in office. I look at whether or not they were assassinated, and I think that there is actually a good argument that could be made that both of them were assassinated. Then, of course, the third Whig to be elected was Abraham Lincoln, and everyone knows he was assassinated. That's not even controversial. I mean, that was done in broad daylight. Somebody came up and shot him in the head. You know, same thing with James Garfield and William McKinley, who also were Whiggish presidents. Um, and in the broad sense, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to get into in detail um, how it is that, that Harrison and Taylor died. It is a really interesting story. And it's not what you think it is. You know, as you dig into it, which is what, you know, I'm going to save that for my book. Um, But that all of these leaders had something in common. They all were putting America first. You see, they all believed in American sovereignty and not engaging in entangling alliances around the world, which was a term that Hamilton, the first Whig, used when he helped President Washington write his farewell address. They all believed in the strong American Republic. They all were against the conspiracy back then to tear the country apart uh, that eventually was resulted in the Civil War. And that includes Lincoln. Um, they were all strong American patriots. They were all against any sort of international order. They were all against despotism and authoritarianism. You know, support for a strong national government is not support for a socialist government, an authoritarian government. That's something that generally their opponents... Um, were uh, supporters of. And it makes me think that the opposition that President Donald Trump is facing really is the same opposition that every patriotic American president and leader has faced, um, going all the way back to Washington. And that is that Trump echoes the Whig philosophy, the idea that the purpose of government is to put the, the people of the nation and their interests first. And, and of course, given that we are Americans, that means the American people and the American government first. If we were citizens of Zimbabwe, I would want to see the government put Zimbabweans first. It's natural. It's normal. This philosophy reflects 
what is real, what is right. Um, you put your nation first for the same reason that you put yourself first, that you put your family first, that you put your own community first over others. That's a, the way it is in the world. That's who we are. That's good. It's progressive. It's, it results in a stronger person who then can do good for other people. This idea that somehow by President Trump saying that he wants to put Americans first, he's you know somehow denigrating other people. That's that's a bunch of BS. It's absolute nonsense. Quite the opposite. If you put yourself first, you are then in a position where you can help other people. If you sublimate yourself to the good of other people, you're hurting everybody. You're hurting yourself and other people. You're bringing down the whole system. You know, you're you're basically um, you know it's a fraud. I mean, it's it's unnatural. I mean, what I'm talking about, this idea of putting yourself first, putting your nation first, this is something that exists in nature. I mean, animals understand this. You know, the beaver understands it when they build their dam. The bird understands it when they build their nest. You know, they're putting their own interests first. This is how it is. They're creating property. I mean, it's natural. And yet there is a conspiracy in the broad sense, in the general sense, in every generation for people to want to ask others to to sacrifice their human ability to put themselves first under the selling point, under the marketing point, that somehow they can help others by giving up freedom. This is one of the great lies of history. So this is the lie that that has predominated our establishment at different times in history, never more than in our own times. Um, particularly with the the decrepit administration of Barack Obama um, and before that of the Bushes and Clinton, none of whom were, were particularly great individualists. I mean, they were all sort of progressive socialists and internationalists to varying degrees, I would argue. But now we have, again, an opportunity to right the ship of state and to get back to who we are. Putting our nation first, putting ourselves first, putting our families first, and these are exactly the ideas that were articulated by that brash businessman by the name of Donald J. Trump. We ought to embrace what he stands for. We ought to cherish it. We ought to understand it. Don't be fooled by these regressive left-wingers who try to divide us with their same old hateful rhetoric and their scorn and their contempt for you and I, the sovereign citizen. Don't be fooled by them. I understand the pressure to conform to their point of view. I get it. The you know, the beautiful people um, are, are against this idea. And while, they, of course, they've enriched themselves in many cases. And they're willing to use the most ugly means by which to enforce their point of view. And it is ugly out there. It's very difficult to stand up and to take a stand. Very difficult. I can speak to this in my own life. I can speak to it in terms of what I've observed. And so I ask you to have an open mind, to take a look at reason. Is it good or bad to put yourself first? Is it good or bad to put your nation first? Are policies that put your nation first good or bad? Like, for example... Do we think it is good or bad to have open borders in this country or in any country? 
is it good to simply open the border and let anybody come in? Or is it reasonable to control the border in the same way that we control our own who goes into our home or who goes into our car? You know, people who like to talk about open borders, I can assure you they have locks on their doors. They have locks on their cars. And the reason they do is because they understand reality. That if you don't protect your house, you don't protect your car, you're going to leave yourself vulnerable to somebody coming in and violating those spaces, stealing your car, raping your wife, whatever, you know, violating your home. So you take necessary precautions. Is it a good thing? It, it, look, I mean, in, an, in a utopian planet where everyone's de facto equal, we like to think that there would be no more crime. But of course, that's not reality. That's, you know, the land of unicorns and, and rainbows. I mean, the reality is that human beings are imperfect beings. I mean, we have a dark side to our nature. We all do. Some people act on that dark side by committing crimes and by violating the freedoms and the rights of other people. That's just reality. There is nothing that can change that. <clears throat> the only thing we can do is lessen its impact and reduce its power by identifying it as evil and by taking practical steps to slow it down, like locking your door, like having a system of law and order by which people who do these things will be punished and swiftly. These are deterrents. And so under that same guise, does it not make sense to protect the national border? No one has a right to come into this or any country. We have a right to decide who comes in for the same reason that that we have a right to decide who comes into our private home. And we can decide for whatever reason we want. That's why we elect governments. Now, President Trump's policies, he may not have been able to build the wall, and I actually think he should build it, and I hope he does. But even though he hasn't, at least not yet, his policies have resulted in people who are not invited to come into this country leaving in droves. They're going back home to their home countries. It's also caused a major saving on the state level in welfare payments, EBT cards, you know, the full Sarnayev, so to speak, where they're going to get all these benefits paid for by you and I, the hardworking taxpayer. Um, no one has a right to that money. You know, whether or not you believe that we should offer welfare public, as a public policy, and I actually do believe we should, I, as a taxpayer, want that money to go to Americans who are truly needy, people who have paid into the system and who have fallen on hard times, people who are disabled um, and who probably paid into the system in the form of Social Security. Uh, and even if they hadn't, if they're American citizens, I want them taken care of because as an American, I believe that our country can afford to do it. And I don't want to see any American citizen uh, suffer unduly. Um, you know, but however, when, when an American citizen enters into an agreement by which they accept money from me, part of that contract is that they also are not going to defraud me. They're going to, um, you know, accept the money because they need it only as long as they need it and until they get back on their feet. Or if they're disabled, I'll be willing to support them for the rest of their life. But they're going to do it with gratefulness and with, with humbleness, not because they think they're owed it, and certainly not because they are defrauding the system, which is exactly what's happening with illegal aliens who are coming here and going on welfare, and even legal aliens who are coming here and going on welfare. They haven't paid into the system. I don't mind immigration, but let them come here and, and contribute, not, not, not take money away. Now, we're reaching the end of the program. I just want to mention also uh, there was a good column, or good, I don't know if I'd say good, but a column by Brett Stevens in the New York Times. Used to be somewhat conservative. He's gone over to the dark side where he criticizes President Trump for being against immigration. Bunch of crap. Untrue. Complete lies. He lists a bunch of 
uh, statistics which show how much immigrants have contributed to this country as opposed to native-born Americans, which is true. Uh, but but the controversy is not about immigrants. The controversy is about illegal aliens. And if he was honest and did an actual a mock-up of statistics comparing what illegal aliens have contributed versus Americans, both legal immigrants and natural-born, you'd have a whole different story, but that would not fit the narrative, which is that Donald Trump is against immigrants. Complete garbage. Totally untrue. Donald Trump is not against immigrants. This is just absolute hogwash. But this is a sort of viciousness and and nastiness that we're we're dealing with here. It's just it's just um, an assault by the by the Eastern Seaboard establishment to uh, to destroy those ultimately who believe in the American system and who want to actually advance not only this country but all of humanity by putting their nation and themselves first and taking steps to advance those interests. That is why I think, based on my research, uh, presidents like William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor and Abraham Lincoln and James Garfield and William McKinley were killed because they stood for those principles and that there is an agenda existing, a completely irrational agenda, one that can be studied that opposes those ideas. And in our modern times, that agenda has taken the form of communism, and Nazism. Anyway, I've reached sort of the end of the program. I want to thank you very much for listening this afternoon. My name is Chuck Morse. I shall return, God willing, next Thursday here live at WMFO in Medford uh, between 10 and 11 a.m. The program will be carried by uh, my podcast, uh, which is Chuck Morse Speaks. You can check out my column, which is available at Newsmax. And, of course, my books are available at Amazon. Um, and my new book, which I'm enjoying writing right now, uh, again, it's, it's fantastic research. It is the, uh, the History of American Assassination. So I hope you all are having a nice summer. I hope you're all staying cool. Maybe check out the beach. I might even go to the beach myself this weekend. We'll see what happens. I'm enjoying a little bit of R&R as we move into the summer. And uh, again, I want to thank everyone for listening. And I want to thank uh, Tufts University for allowing me to do the show. Have a good afternoon, everybody.